You've heard me talk about it before on this show, but the common conception of Southern culture is just a little too narrow. If you ask people about Southern culture, they typically fall back on the same old Dukes of Hazards or Gone with the Wind or Cracker Barrel stereotypes. And it blinds us to the millions of diverse stories that should be considered Southern, because they are. 24% of the country's Asian American population lives in the South. That's second only to the American West. Asian Americans have transformed Southern food and music and business and politics. But when authors like Anjali and Jetty have pitched books about Southern Indian families, well, more often than not, they've been told there's not really a market for that. But thankfully, Anjali wasn't deterred. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm John Hammontree, and this week we're talking with Anjali and Jetty, who now has two books out in a matter of months. One, Southbound, is a collection of essays about her identity as a mixed-race Southerner, and it is genuinely one of the best books I've read about the South in years. And she has another exceptional book out, The Parted Earth, which is a beautiful novel that will expand your ideas about what should be considered Southern literature. On this week's episode, she discusses her experiences moving from Michigan to Chattanooga at a young age, the obstacles that face Asian Southerners, whether looking to get published, invited to a dance, or even to cast a ballot, why Americans should be paying attention to India's past and present, plus the role of the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities in the Georgia election. That's a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Anjali and Jetty, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thanks so much for having me, John. I'm so thrilled to be here. You are having quite a few months between the Georgia elections, which we'll talk a little bit later on, and then you have released two books in two months, I think. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, although I am very grateful for it. I think because one of your books focuses so much on identity, we'll start out with a pretty easy existential question of um, who are you? I am many things, as all of us are. Um, I call myself a mixed race brown woman. I am, I feel, a child of the deep south. I am the daughter of an immigrant. I am half Indian and a quarter Puerto Rican and a quarter Austrian. I am also cis hetero woman and a mother, a daughter, a sister, hopefully a friend of of many people. I believe you moved to Chattanooga originally from Michigan when you were in fifth grade. And you talk in your book Southbound, which is a collection of essays about that being the age that you really kind of started to be aware of of racial differences anyways. Tell us a little bit about your life in Chattanooga and how it compared to Michigan and, you know, your thoughts on both. Absolutely. So I moved from a suburb of Detroit down to Chattanooga at age 10 in 1984. Four or 85. And I was eight years old when Vincent Chin was killed near Detroit. So I had started thinking about Asian identity and race and racism at eight, but was a little too young to really get a full understanding of it until I moved to Chattanooga, where race and racism is very obvious issue. People are not quiet about what they think about race. Segregation was kind of praise. People living in different neighborhoods. The Confederate flag was everywhere. People were very openly nostalgic for racist times. And while they would not express 
particularly that they missed slavery, you could see that the part of the reason that they longed for earlier times was related to the fact that they could give so much work to Black people. And many people still had Black maids, restaurants. There were quite a few expensive restaurants where the servers were African-American and people in the back were African-American. And then the people that were the owners were white. So it was a very wide awakening for me. And and also as a brown person, there were not many brown people at all. Most things in Chattanooga then were black and white. And so when I was in the fifth grade, where I started school after we moved down, I was the only visibly brown person in the entire grade. There was a white passing Latinx girl in my class, but I just did not even see anyone. And my grade had over a hundred kids in it. And my school had about 600 kids. And I never saw another brown child who looked anything like me went to sixth grade and I was in a grade of 50 kids. There was one black child and then there was me and there were no other children of color. So this was different for me than in Michigan where even though I lived in a fairly white neighborhood, there were still several black and brown people that I encountered at school. My parents, we would go into Detroit and I would see people from all colors and nationalities and speaking multiple languages. So there was quite a culture shock for me to not even see people who looked like me, or if I did see people who looked like me, it was kind of this rare event, right? We would run towards each other and introduce ourselves to each other because you you just could not find a lot of people. I proceeded to go to a private school that was a combined junior high and high school. And when I started in the seventh grade, there were just a handful of brown students and black students. When I graduated in 12th grade, it got a little bit better. But certainly, I felt like I had entered a bit of a, of a, a, a foreign country, one that was mainly white, had some black people, but certainly nobody that looked like me or few people that looked like me. And you write about, you know, that leading to a lot of complicated internal feelings. You write very poignantly about a debutante ball there in Chattanooga that you did not get invited to in all likelihood because you were a brown person. And, you know, on the one hand, rejecting the idea of debutante balls, but on the other hand, feeling rejected in that moment. Uh, are there other instances where, where you had to balance those two feelings of, of wanting to be included, even though you knew the things you would be included in were, were not necessarily great? I mean, I would say every aspect of my life was me trying to mold myself to whiteness because I saw that as success, right? I saw that as being accepted, I wanted to fit in, and what I understood as a child was to fit in, I needed to sort of reformulate myself. I needed to uphold white supremacy, although I didn't know the term white supremacy in the 1980s and early 1990s. I'd never heard of it. And so in every aspect of my life, I took a look at, for example, uh, what my white classmates were doing, what was considered civility, manners, 
these uh, entities that seem race neutral on the surface, but which which aren't, right? I mean, so I would see, I would hear something, a comment from a classmate that would be homophobic or racist. Uh, and I would, instead of, I would know this when I heard the comment, because I was certainly aware of bigotry then, but I would stay silent. I would notice that, you know, people would sort of self-segregate and would see teachers say stuff to the kids of color and to the Black students, you know, not give them as much time to talk in the classroom. And so I would try to be the model white student and I would try not to make any waves. I mean, I was very much upholding the model minority myth. I had bought into that completely. And so, for example, when the debutante ball came around, if you had asked me, is this racist? So few people of color were ever invited. And there was a separate ball for Black people. And so if you had asked me then, I would have said, absolutely, it's racist. I know it's racist. And yet, I still yearned to be able to get an invitation in order to reject it. I still longed for white goals. And therein lied the problem. I was still upholding white supremacy by simply desiring being something that I wasn't. And I was a pretty confident kid. I mean, it's not like I ever wanted to be white. I really, I loved myself. I loved my multiracial background and culture. And I loved that I had a Catholic mother and a, a Hindu father and that you know, I'd visited family members in both Austria and in India over the years. So this is a different kind of shame, right? It's not that I, I longed to be like my white best friends. It's that I wanted the benefits of being white. But that is very problematic. That is racist in, itself, in and of itself. I just didn't understand it at the time. You mentioned the death of Vincent Chin in Michigan before you moved to Chattanooga. And I don't think that that's a name that's necessarily as commonly known in the South as, say, Emmett Till, for example. Can you just tell us a little bit about who Vincent Chin was and, and the circumstances that led to his murder? Absolutely. Vincent Chin was living in Michigan, out, right outside of Detroit, with his mother, Lily. He was engaged to be married in a few days. And he went out one night to a strip bar with his buddies, few of whom were actually also Asian. And when he got to this strip bar, he encountered uh, racial slurs from two men who, uh, whose jobs were in jeopardy, who had been laid off by the auto industry. This was a time when there was a popularity in Japanese cars. There were talks of uh, a Japanese plant being built on U.S. soil. And a lot of automakers felt very threatened by this. Now, Vincent actually wasn't Japanese, but he was Chinese. However, his assailants, Ronald Evans and Michael Nitz, saw him as someone who was Japanese, hurled some racial slurs his way, and Vincent and his friends left. They left the scene. Unfortunately, Evans and Nitz went to the trunk of their car, and they are stepfather and step, uh, stepson, pulled out a bat, and went after Vincent and his friends, and they pummeled Vincent in the head in a McDonald's parking lot. They struck him four times. Vincent was transported to the local hospital, and he died a few days later, and his funeral ended up happening on the same day 
that he was supposed to get married to a woman named Vicky. And it was a, a horrific killing. And it became an opportunity for federal hate crime charges to be filed on behalf of an Asian American person in the U.S. for the first time ever. Now, unfortunately, Chin's uh, killers were not convicted. They did not spend a single day in jail. The hate crime charges were dismissed. There was a civil suit filed on behalf of the estate of Vincent Chin, which garnered a reward of millions of dollars. Ebbins and Nitz have not paid a single dime. So the family of Vincent Chin has never in any way received any kind of compensation for this horrific killing. And certainly if there was any good to come of this, it was that it galvanized Asian Americans in the civil rights movement. This wasn't the first time Asian Americans engaged in other kinds of civil rights work before Vincent was killed. But for Gen Xers like myself, who were coming of age during this time, it really raised awareness for us about anti-Asian hate and this kind of brutality that many of us had seen exercised against Black people against Latinx folks and some indigenous folks. But for those of us who were not aware of Asian American history at the time, it was the first time where we saw such hatred against an Asian person. Um, and Ebbins and Nitz, to my knowledge, are still alive. And I know that a few years ago there was an interview with Ebbins and, you know, he very meekly offered an apology, but really seemed to uh, feel that he was justified in committing the crime. And Nitz's whereabouts as of now uh, are unknown. So this was a significant moment in U.S. civil rights history, in Asian American history. And sadly, this essay is more relevant now than ever. I mean, when I had to turn in my book. It was last summer. The Trump administration was hurling constant racist remarks about Asian folks, especially after COVID hit U.S. shores. And there had been some Asian uh, hate crimes, but not the number that we've had in recent months. It's completely escalated. And there seems to be no end in sight. And of course, in Atlanta, sadly, in March, we had a killing spree by a man who ended up killing eight people, six of them Asian women, at two different Asian businesses. The lessons of Vincent Chin, unfortunately, seem to have not been learned by non-Asian folks, by law enforcement. It's very hard to get these types of violence against Asian folks taken seriously. And unfortunately, there are too many Asians who still upholds the model minority myth and don't want to talk about these types of crimes in the community. Either they are traumatized by them themselves or they simply want to be known as that quiet, productive person um, who uh, is unaffected by hate, which ends up hurting the Asian community even more. You write a little bit about kind of that gap between you and your father, who certainly felt his fair share of racism, but never necessarily wanted to call it by name. I got the impression that that was, at least in his mind, maybe for the protection of, of your family and for your benefit, even if it didn't become that impracticality. But 
you also write that feeling of being targeted is potentially what led him to be a, a very strong caregiver and provider for AIDS patients in, in the 80s and 90s uh, when they were being stigmatized. Walk us through that realization about your father, but then also about you know your own identity and, and what it meant to you as, as a Southerner. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's so complicated. And of course, I'm extremely subjective about it, right? That essay was so challenging for me to write because I came at it from a place of judgment of him. I felt very gaslit growing up being told over and over again by my one brown parent. My mom is half Puerto Rican, but she's white passing. But I felt very gaslit by my father for saying, they're not racist, they're just ignorant. They're not racist, you know, they, they, they're just insecure. They're just jealous, right? I mean, I heard like every possible excuse for other people's racism. Um, and, and in Chattanooga, we did experience quite a lot of racism. I, you know, I talk about in that essay called Treatment that I almost like, I couldn't even figure out what racism was anymore. I was kind of like, okay, somebody dies because of their skin color, that must be racism. But part of me just had trouble really grasping what it was. When I talk to my father today, he tells me things like, well, I thought it was because I was foreign that people didn't like me, not because I was Indian and you guys were born here. So I didn't think you had anything to worry about. So the truth is very, very complicated. I have a lot of friends who are the children of immigrants, children of Asian immigrants, Latinx immigrants. They were told very similar things from their own parents. There was something about their immigrant parents of that decade in particular, right, of my generation. My immigrant friends today don't hesitate to use the word racism to describe racism. But I think in the 70s, in the 80s, even in part of the 1990s, we were told things were not racist. And so we were trying to form a self-concept. We were being harmed by so many people and yet it kind of then made us feel like it was our fault, right? We weren't good enough. We weren't smart enough. We weren't nice enough. And so that's taken quite a while for me to outgrow, for me to overcome that I was just striving and striving to be better so that I would not endure racialized trauma. But I was also thinking the racialized trauma was in part my fault. Even if I knew something was racist, I figured I did something to irritate them for them to release that racism towards me. What was so interesting about that is that my dad was such a champion for healthcare rights for, for people who had HIV or AIDS at a time in the 1980s when people were just so vicious and violent and hostile, including healthcare workers. Healthcare workers were probably some of the worst. Now, there were, of course, many loving, caring doctors and nurses. And those are most of the people that my dad worked with. But the ones who were bigots were horrific. And, you know, my, my dad wouldn't stand for it. So there was always this irony to me that my dad could say so clearly how wrong it was for people to discriminate against people who were HIV positive and had AIDS. And at that time, it was, per the, the attacks were particularly hurled against 
any member of the gay community, the LGBTQIA community was to, assumed to have AIDS, right? I mean, it was just kind of like the Asian thing where like anybody who looks could possibly be Asian gets the Islamophobia, gets the anti-Asian hate. Same thing was happening then in the in the 1980s. And of course that's true today too. So, uh, so I struggled with that. Like, how can you see this discrimination against the LGBTQIA population and just not really admit that what's happening to me and my brother and to you is racist. It's just, I couldn't put it together. But what I've taken out of that, I ultimately learned how to advocate for people who don't share an identity with me through him. And while he might not have, I never would have called him an activist. He doesn't call himself an activist. I actually learned some of the underpinnings of what activism is, which is fiercely advocating for a group of people, regardless of whether you have any connection to them, and really going to bat to them, like really fighting openly, ad advocating for them, not being silent. And so I learned that from him. And, and I really feel like his modeling of that was kind of the start of my own activism, was that I saw somebody doing this who, again, wouldn't admit that what I was dealing with was racism, but my goodness, he was going to bat for this other group of people. And maybe that's what I should do as a human being, too. In an essay about the book industry, as you write it, The Unbearable Whiteness of Southern Literature, you know, you argue very passionately and eloquently about the need to expand our definition of, of what is Southern. You wrote, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, there are many stories about the South that have yet to be told, and the South is far more racially and ethnically diverse than the publishing industry has ever perceived it. It is a region rich in history, in people, and in the stories, Indigenous, Black, and other writers of color are feverishly writing every day, waiting, hoping that they will someday see the light. You obviously have had two books published in the last month, but I know it has been a long, hard road to get to, to the point where these books have been published. What are a few other recommendations of books that you would have our readers, some of your favorites, to see different sides and perspectives of the South? And then also tell us a little bit about your frustrations in getting published yourself. Absolutely. Um, so I write about in that essay, the book, The Atlas of Reds and Blues, which was written by Bevy Lascar. And she was raised in North Carolina and then spent a significant amount of her professional career and raising her three children in a suburb of Atlanta. And hers was one of the first books I encountered by a South Asian or, uh, author, which was about the South. Now we had many other South Asian authors who were writing fantasy and paranormal stories, um, children's books, but we didn't really have many people writing adult literary fiction. And so, and, and I feel like the floodgates are maybe opening a little bit. Sanjana Satyan wrote a wonderful novel that came out about the same time as my book Southbound called Gold Diggers. And it's it got some magical realism in, in it, but it's really about the Indian community in an Atlanta suburb. And so that book is really Southern. It's, a, it's really about 
about the South. And Vina Rao wrote a lovely book that also takes place in India called Purple Lotus. Shelley Anand wrote a wonderful picture book that was published earlier this year called Lakshmi's Mooch. It is about a little girl dealing with her, the fact that she has a mustache uh, and asking questions about the hair above her lip. So I feel like there has been a fairly recent explosion in Southern literature of people who are not white or not black. So I'm starting to feel very hopeful, but it did take me 11 years of trying to publish seven books before I got my first book contract. And the novel that I wrote before The Parted Earth, um, and, and the title changed so many times, but it was a novel that took place in, primarily in North Georgia. And many of the rejections that I got strongly hinted that they could not figure out like where to put this book, like what category it fit in when it was clearly a Southern novel. It's just that there was an Indian family at the heart of it living in North Georgia. And there are several Indian families who live in North Georgia and many of them run the gas stations and the hotels up there. And this family ran a gas station and they've been there for a couple of decades. So not even that new of a phenomena. I was told in so many words that this could not be marketed as a Southern novel. And it was really discouraging for me because I grew up reading Southern literature I came of age in the South and I feel Southern. I feel like a Southern person in, in every way. And so I'm hoping, I'm now in the process of rewriting that novel. I'm, I'm hoping that the imaginations of editors and of agents has expanded significantly in the past few years. And that they're really going to be open to looking for Southern stories by people that are not stereotypically Southern. Because I do feel like this region of the country is stereotyped and condescended to more than any other region of the country. And, and it has real world consequences. So I'm really hoping that there's an opening and that this will stay open and that people in the industry are really looking for these kinds of stories because they've been here for a while and there's certainly no shortage of people writing them and they're ready to be published. Coming up after the break, Anjali Jetty gives us a quick history lesson about partition in India, and she also explains the role that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders played in the Georgia election. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. Well, and certainly we won't expand our collective imagination and definition of the South until we are actively reading these stories. You know, if, if our touchstones remain forever, you know, Atticus Finch, then it, it's hard to, to get beyond that uh, imagination of the South and of who Southerners are. I hope that these two books, Parted Earth especially, you know, lead to more opportunities for you. That book is certainly a Southern novel. It's also a multi-generational novel. It begins in Delhi, in India, during partition. You know, I don't know that that is something that 
many people in our audience would be familiar with. Tell us a little bit about partition was. I, I think at least the way I remember learning it in school, you know, there was British India and then there was Gandhi and then that's it, you know, in, end of story. That's how that's how it happens. Well, I'm super impressed, John, that you even learned that much in school because when I was growing up, I didn't, there wasn't a single word said about partition all the way through college. And in fact, my own education about partition began in 1995 when I graduated from college, I decided that I was going to read everything I could get my hands on about partition because I had pretty much, I didn't know that much more than you did. So the British had occupied India for a couple of hundred years in one form or another. At first it was the East India Company, then it became the the British crown. And in 1947, after a major movement, the Quit India movement, which was led among other people, Gandhi, the British decided to leave. One of the last things they did was literally draw a line in the sand on the northern border and the eastern border to divide what was then known as India into two new nations, India and Pakistan. And until 1947, India, as we know it, was really just the subcontinent. And it wasn't a country, actually. It was simply a series of kingdoms. And so there were these two new nations. Pakistan was Muslim majority, and India was Hindu majority, and Hindu and Sikh majority. And overnight, in August in 1947, people who were Hindu and Sikh living in Pakistan had to migrate to India. And people who were Muslim living in India had to migrate to the new Pakistan. And it ended up in tremendous bloodshed between one and two million people perished and 15 million people migrated. To date, partition is the largest human migration in world history. And you're absolutely correct. Not many people without any kind of South Asian origin know about partition. And in fact, a lot of people from South Asia that were that did not have family living near either of the borders know a whole lot about partition simply because the people who were most affected were those who lived closest to the new borders. Of course, there were other cities that were affected simply by the swell of refugees coming into them. But nonetheless, millions and millions of people were affected. And of course, their descendants were affected by their experiences of upheaval and trauma. And Sadly, there was no formalized widespread effort to collect firsthand testimonies of survivors of partition until six decades later in 2007 when an organization in Pakistan began collecting stories. And then soon after that, the Partition Museum was built. And then the first organization I became aware of was the 1947 Partition Archive, which was based initially in Berkeley and of course now has people all over the world, especially in the subcontinent, who are collecting the stories of survivors. But it took a really, really long time, and many stories were lost in those 60 years. And even for people that survived long enough to tell their stories, many people were too traumatized. They did not share them with their family members. And so there have been a lot of experiences that were never told and that we don't have today. And that was sort of ended up being the focal point of my book is, is what happens to descendants of partition 
uh, although we can think of it as a wider scale, what happens to any descendants of any major historical event when we don't know uh, those stories of our ancestors? How, do, how does not knowing the stories of our ancestors shape the lives of the present day descendants? And I hope, if anything, uh, people reading the book take away the importance of asking their family members, their parents, their grandparents, their great grandparents, if they're still alive, what was your childhood like? What were some of the things that you went through? And if they do not wish to share with them, finding an organization, a historical organization, a university who is collecting stories from a particular time period in a particular country and encourage them to share their stories there because this is history and every story that is lost is a lost opportunity for us to have a deeper understanding of our histories. You know, for anybody listening, it's clear that Anjali is not only an author, but also an activist. And you played a very important role, I think, in the Georgia elections. I don't know if it started in 2016 and 2017 for you, but certainly has escalated each year. I think it's fair to say that, you know, we would have seen different results in the presidential election in Georgia and also in the Senate and Senate runoff elections in Georgia, if it weren't for, you know, the turnout among Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders there. And you've been very active in turning out the vote there, getting people involved and keeping people involved even in off years. In your book, a very unlikely blueprint for the, for your success was modeling it off of the, the Tea Party strategy. And it seems harder um, than the Tea Party because, you know, the Tea Party is effectively unifying a lot of people who share the same skin color, broadly. I don't want to say that there weren't minority Tea Partiers, but certainly share the same language. Whereas the Asian American immigrant population in Georgia speaks a variety of languages, comes from a variety of nations. How did you conceive of organizing them in such an effective way? You know, first of all, I had a lot of help. We have a great many uh, incredible uh, Asian American activists in Georgia, and many of us, and I, like many of them, did not get involved particularly with electoral organizing until after Trump was elected in 2016. I had been watching and reading about the rise of the Tea Party for years, and I was just fascinated by how quickly they could mobilize. Now, of course, they were they were funded by billionaires, right? The Koch brothers, they, they threw money at them. And so part of it was funding. But at the end of the day, it was about getting to people who did not feel that they had a voice in government. And the way to engage with them is on some kind of one-on-one -on -one level. It's either having an in-person gathering or calling someone up or texting someone and saying, hey, here are some issues that may be important to you. We're trying to elect you know, this candidate because they support these issues. Why don't you come out to vote? And so it's, it was a very, very localized grassroots movement Many of us in Georgia, many AAPIs in Georgia, had not had a lick of electoral organizing experience until John Ossoff ran for Congress in the 6th Congressional District, uh, which is a district in the northern uh, suburbs of Atlanta. It's where I live. And that's where we met one another. And it was about that time, too, that I learned for the first time that Asian Americans had one of the lowest voter turnout of any other racial demographic in the U.S., which was shocking to me. I never would have guessed that. I had assumed wrongfully that many of the Asian uh, immigrants that I knew were just not citizens. 
and that that's why they weren't voting. And then I would find out that they'd been citizens for 10 years or 15 years and just weren't getting to the polls. And so we got our feet wet with John Ossoff's campaign, Representative Sam Park, who is still serving in the Georgia legislature. He headed up the AAPI outreach group for the Ossoff campaign. And we held events that were specific to members of the Asian American community. And and that's how we started getting people involved was, hey, here's a meet and greet with John and it's just for us AAPI folks, why don't you come? People, AAPI voters started feeling heard. They started feeling like, oh, I'm not being ignored by candidates because up until then, at least in Georgia, They did not feel seen by any of their elected officials or their candidates. We still have only a handful of people in the Georgia legislature who are Asian American. And so they started coming out to the polls and the numbers grew tremendously from that 2017 special election to the fall of 2018 for the midterm election where we came out and supported the Democratic candidates up and down the ballot, including Stacey Abrams. And then we had a tremendous turnout in 2020 and 2021. And it's been enormous movement here. And it's been such an honor for me to witness people to go who went from in 2017 telling me they didn't vote because they weren't political to literally knocking doors in 2021 for the runoff election to get Asian Americans to the polls. I mean, It was really a very short period of time that this evolution took place. And I hope that Asian Americans in other states can sort of look to what we've done here and and copy it. And in addition to the Tea Party, we also, of course, had the model of Black organizers here. I mean, we had Stacey Abrams, who was doing the kind of organizing that wasn't really common 10 years ago, which was going out and finding likely Democratic voters who had been ignored by the Democratic process instead of trying to convert people who were Republican voters. You get far more bang for your buck when you go to people who are likely to say, oh yeah, hey, that candidate, I like it, I'm going to go vote for them, than you do trying to argue with a Republican that they should vote for your candidate. So that's what we started doing too. We started just finding people we thought would likely vote for Democrats. And we poured our energy into them. And of course, we still had to sort of combat a lot of misinformation, even within people who were, who were planning to vote Democrat, uh, about the election, about the Republican candidates. It turns out that driving out the vote in likely Democratic communities works. And we had such a high voter turnout And, you know, I couldn't believe that Biden uh, won in Georgia by 11,000 votes. And then for the runoff election, only two days later, we knew for sure that uh, Ossoff and Warnock won and were going to the Senate. I didn't even predict that. I thought it would be, you know, there would be all kinds of election challenges and and that it would be too close and a recount and perhaps maybe one of them would win, but not both of them. I mean, it was really, it really blew my mind, to be quite honest. I just couldn't believe that it, that it worked. This is really a lesson for all of us that even in a global pandemic where people can't even get together in person, the more personal interaction you have with people in your own community, the more likely they're, they're, they're going to get to the polls. And I hope 
you know, we can we can repeat this, especially in 2022, when many of us have extremely crucial elections. There was a lot of speculation about what drove increased Asian American and, and Pacific Islander turnout. And, and obviously, I mean, that, you know, that's such a broad term because it can refer to East Asia and Southeast Asia and the subcontinent. But there, there was some speculation that Vice President Kamala Harris's Indian ancestry might have played a role. How, how much truth do you think there is to that? And then also, historically, you know, the AAPI community has been considered fairly conservative. What led to that that shift in the last four years? I mean, was it just Trump or was it was there more to it than that? So even with Barack Obama, more when Barack Obama ran for the first time, more AAPIs voted for him. So I would say the shift started towards more Democrats in 2008. But to answer your question about Kamala Harris, I think what happened with her is it's not necessarily that more people voted for Biden because Harris was on the ticket. I think what happened when she became the nominee for vice president is that a lot more South Asians began talking about the election and were louder about who they were voting for because they were expressing pride in her South Asian ancestry and in her mother, Shamala Harris, who you know, was this breast cancer researcher, and she was an activist as well, um, and, and an organizer in California. So I think it really ramped up the discourse, and it made South Asians who might have been a little quieter about their politics, perhaps they didn't talk about politics at work or with certain groups of friends or at cultural or, uh, events. But once she was named the VP, I think people just, the conversations just seemed to explode. People exuded pride. And that is ex- incredibly helpful in getting people to the polls too. When people can identify in some way with a candidate's ancestry, it gets them talking and they post on social media and they post memes and they post photos and it encourages others to get excited about an election. And when you increase the excitement about an election, you get people talking about voting. You know, have you voted yet? Are you going to vote? Who are you voting for? And so I think that was really the icing on the cake is that perhaps her Kamala Harris's mixed identity didn't convert anybody, but it got those folks who were maybe maybe quieter Democrats to be louder about their politics. And that might have motivated more people to get to the polls than would have otherwise. You know, to close, what would you say to minority Southerners, but also people who who want to see the South in kind of the way that you described as, as more than black and white and recognize the South for all of this complexity? How do you keep them engaged for 2022 but also just engaged in in recognizing the South for, for what it really is? You know, that's a great question. That's a very big question to close with, John. I will try to do your question the justice that it deserves. So one of the things I tell people as an organizer, I, I mean, certainly I don't like to, to burn people out on the work, but one of the things I tell people is that this is year-round work and every single year is an election year. This year... We all have local elections, and we are going to be electing people to the city council, to county commission. Some people will have school board elections. And what we know from COVID is that these, quote, small elections actually impact our daily life more than who is president, more than who is your governor. 
And so we've got to do what Republicans have been doing from the beginning of time. They have been filling these positions, often running without any opposition, and they have been using these local positions to catapult themselves into offices that have even more power. So we've got to stay engaged year round. Certainly we need to take breaks and we need to not burn out, but we've got to stay involved. Find something that you you love and uh, find something that you feel that you are good at and try to try to do it long term uh, if you can, because um, this this work isn't going to end. And, and the South is really at the brink of something beautiful. I mean, I felt really bad for Florida and Texas and North Carolina when they could not flip the big seats. But I was so proud of the organizers in those states, even, even Mississippi too. I mean, they moved the needle and they moved the needle despite rampant voter suppression and constant legislation that really hampered their ability to get out the vote the way they wanted to. And they were dealing with uh, officials uh, as we were in Georgia that were not putting much rest many restrictions on activity in a global pandemic. And so we were all living in very dangerous states. I mean, Georgia was the last state to close and the first to open four weeks later. So, you know, our, our COVID cases were soaring. So we had to deal with these elections under such strenuous and dangerous circumstances. But I think there are good things on the way for all of us. And I hope that there can be more sort of interstate sharing in the South of things that worked, things that didn't work. I mean, obviously, every state, every community has its own needs, but just having a conversation with one another, a lot of these conversations have been happening in online symposiums, on Twitter. You know, who do you know in this state that I can connect an activist to, to help get out the vote? And so I'm really hopeful about what the South is going to do. I mean, we are being punished daily for exercising our voices in government, as, and as Georgia has too. I mean, our new law, SB202 is basically punishing us for flipping in 2020 and 2021. But we are also getting more active and more engaged. I'm really hopeful. And I think uh, people are going to be so ready, not just for local elections this year, but I think they're going to be really ready in 2022. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens. Well, thank you so much. Everybody go out and buy both of her books and follow her on Twitter. Let's keep having great conversations about the South. Thanks. Thank you so much, John. You take care. And that's our show, folks. Special thanks to Anjali and Jetty for taking the time to speak with us this week. Her books are available at www.anjaliandjetty.com. Also, I want to give a thank you to Hub City Press for arranging this week's interview and for their dedication to publishing works by Southern authors. If you share their commitment to hearing new voices from the South, then you may enjoy The Conversation, our weekly newsletter where we look at the South through a new lens each week. Sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. This episode was produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree. It was edited by Kanika Codrington and the great team at Edit Audio. And our original theme music was written and recorded by Alexander Ritchie. If you're new here, why don't you go ahead and sign up to get our show in your feed every week. And if you've been listening for a while, why don't you send it to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That'll help us keep growing the show so we can book more guests like Anjali. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.